0: Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for showing us who you are, for condescending to us as your people. And Father, I pray that as we continue to look at your word this morning, as Pastor Nick comes and opens up the book of Mark to us, that your spirit would be active in our hearts, convicting us of sin and encouraging us in righteousness. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. good morning again happy new year if you will turn with me in your bibles to mark we're in chapter 9 mark chapter 9 starting at verse 2 and since it's been a little while just want to remind you the last thing that jesus had said jesus after being called the christ by peter Jesus immediately says the implications of what that means, which is that he is now on his on the road and the path the suffering, that he's going to journey towards Jerusalem. He's going to be rejected by the world, and he would die. And Peter reacted pretty violently against that, rebuking Jesus. And Jesus, instead of speaking about his own crucifixion, his own death, He says to the crowd, whoever would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus spent time talking to the crowd, indicating that cross bearing, self denying loyalty would be the principle of the Christian life. And if we are following a suffering Savior, that it should not be surprising that Christians will suffer like the person they're following. And where we get to in chapter nine is that little phrase at the very end, verse one says, And he truly, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. You see, suffering is not the final word. The Christian life is marked by suffering. Out of devotion to Christ, we can expect it. But the reason what makes it worth it to follow Jesus Christ is not because we're going to suffer. Everyone does that if you live in this world. What makes it worth it is what Jesus said right there at the end is the glory that comes with it. The glory that Jesus is able to provide to those who follow him. And we have this little time marker after six days showing this connection. And let's read about this. Where is this, this some standing here who will not taste death until they see the power of the kingdom? starting at verse two. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And its clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah, with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud this is my beloved son listen to him and suddenly looking around they no longer saw anyone with them but jesus only and as they were coming down from the mountain He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the son of man had risen from the dead. So they kept this matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the son of man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. What we're reading of here on these pages of scripture It's probably the one miracle, like if you were to read the list of miracles that Jesus performed, the one that would be left out of that list. Yet this was the greatest of all miracles that Jesus had performed in his earthly ministry. What these three people were witnessing, Peter, James, and John, was Jesus's glory. Peter had confessed with his mouth that Peter was the Christ but he didn't really understand what that meant at all. When we read, even after this great experience that he had, he still doesn't really know what it means. But what Jesus is doing here is he's showing this glory that he spoke of, the glory of what it means that Jesus is the Christ. And this glory that he gives them a small taste of is to meant to give them that assurance that we spoke of that su- through suffering will lead to glory if you are following the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's because the glory that we are looking forward to is a glory that Jesus has. That's his possession. And if he owns this glory, this magnificent splendor, he's able to give it to others as his possession. And then, looking at this glory we're going to look at a display of glory of Jesus actually showing this we're going to look at the different responses, one of Peter and one of God the Father himself, and then hopefully, if we have time, which we might not, look at the actual interpretation of it in that conversation that Jesus is having because really, here we have two scenes: Jesus immediately after predicting that He's going to give some a taste of glory. He grabs three by the hand and brings them up on the mountaintop. And Luke tells us in Luke chapter 9 that he went up there to pray. You know, we see Jesus actually often going up on a mountaintop to pray. This is what happened in Gethsemane. And like other times, like in Gethsemane, Luke tells us that they grew tired and they fell asleep. That they went up to have their prayer meeting. That's all they were expecting. This was the usual occasion on Jesus' part to pray to his father. But this time was different. This time they saw something so unbelievable, so magnificent. And then they're told at the very end that they can't talk about it. Well, what's this magnificence that was displayed? Well, the first thing that they see that Mark tells us is that he was transfigured before them. That word there is the same word. It's the word metamorphosis. They saw Jesus's appearance radically change. Metamorphosis just means that the form morph changed meta. Metamorphosis. It's the kind of change that a caterpillar goes when it becomes a chrysalis and then that chrysalis becomes a butterfly. It's the same in substance, but the outward manifestation of it radically changed. And the kind of change that Luke and Matthew focus on is that the change of his appearance, that his face shone like the sun, that his face was altered that there was this glow about him. And this should bring you back to other times that people have encounters with God. Moses, after spending these 40 days on top of the mountain, on Mount Sinai, after walking into that cloud where we left him, after receiving the 10 commandments, when he comes down from the mountain, from being in God's presence, he has a light reflecting off of him from being in that presence. This glory that's emanating from Jesus is that of being in the presence of God. And we know that the reaction was the same as the Israelites. They were terrified by this. But Mark does not focus on the change of Jesus's face he points out a different interesting detail. He says that Jesus's clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth earth could bleach them. See, Jesus, he looked at Jesus's clothes and noticed that they were so intensely white that you could not take them to the local bleacher, if you will, and get them that clean to get them that bright, to get them that white. You see, with all these things, the point here is that what they're witnessing was supernatural. That Jesus's physical appearance, his physical clothes had changed. And that what they were witnessing was his glory. And that clothing probably would have taken them back to Daniel chapter 7, where we read that the ancient of days, the one who would establish the kingdom of God, who would be sitting seated at the throne of God forever and ever, that he took his seat and his clothing was white as snow and his hair like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. He is the son of man that Daniel spoke of. What Jesus is revealing to them then is that his glory, Jesus being the Christ, meant that this earthly king was also a heavenly king seated on the throne of God. And when we realize this about Jesus, I think that we can start to glimpse at what kind of kingdom God would be bringing through his Messiah, Jesus Christ. You know, part of the confusion here in the Jewish people at this time is they were expecting a political kingdom. They were expecting that once the Messiah came, he would overthrow the Roman government, that he would displace it, and that he would make his people the political rulers of this world. But what kind of king is Jesus? Jesus is the king of the kingdom of God. They were expecting all of it to happen at once, then when the, that when the Messiah came, that the judgment would begin at that moment. All the nations would be defeated. The resurrection would happen and the end time would come. But with the coming of Jesus, what we realize that the coming of the kingdom of God with power came progressively through stages. It became very present at the very beginning of Jesus's ministry since Jesus is the king who has come. Jesus entered ushered this in through different stages when he entered into the wilderness defeating the devil he entered this through stages when he manifested this in the resurrection defeating death but even then we realize that this kingdom is still not in its consummate end form We know that there's one day that we're looking forward to in the future. Revelation 11 verse 15 tells us that one day the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. You see, while Jesus had just previously placed a great emphasis on the costliness of being a follower of Jesus Christ... He's not teaching here that the great cost to us somehow leaves us lacking. That if we give up our earthly life in order to follow Jesus Christ, that we'll be missing out on something. Because what Jesus teaches his disciples here is that the kingdom of grace, which is ushered in by the cross, was destined to be the kingdom of glory ushered in by his final return what this gives when it comes to suffering is it gives christians perspective you know if we're going to go through any suffering in life we need to kind of know at least two different things if it's going to be manageable one is we have to know that it's gonna end at some point that our suffering is not the end of the story that there's a light at the end of the tunnel, knowing that helps us to persevere because we see that there's a future expectation where there will be relief. And more than that, more than just simple relief, what we're given is glory. Pleasures forevermore of being in God's presence, of experiencing the resurrection of our body, that the frailty of us will be removed when sin and death is removed from this earth but the other thing that we need to know is not that just our suffering is temporary putting it into the right perspective but we also need to know that our suffering has a purpose to it jesus's suffering has a purpose to it to accomplish the redemption of sinners our suffering's not for that reason our suffering's not to pay for our sins but our suffering does have a purpose you know this word metamorphosis is only used one other time and it's used speaking of christians being transformed into the likeness of jesus christ that's how god uses our suffering in this life its purpose is to winnow away our sin, to winnow away our perspective that's so limited, and get us to focus on Jesus Christ, living for Him, dying for Him. Jesus here is giving an experience, and by relating to it, it to us, we get to see that suffering is not the end. That's the display that's being witnessed, but this display doesn't just end with Jesus and speaking with Moses and Elijah. Peter responds to it. Isn't it amazing that when Moses and Elijah come to bear witness to Christ, that we're told in Luke that the topic of conversation that Elijah, Moses, and Jesus were having was about his departure or his exodus to Jerusalem? about the work that he's going to accomplish, that then he goes over and talks to Peter and condescends to him. And Peter's response, it's a little bit strange at first. He says, oh, teacher, it's really good that we are here at this prayer meeting, that we're here at this unique occasion when he was transformed meeting with Moses and Elijah two of the greats of the Old Testament. He says, I have an idea. Why don't we make tents, make booths, stay here for a while, linger, and we'll make one for you, Jesus, one for Elijah, and one for Moses. And if you're confused here, I really, Peter himself is confused because he said, for he did not know what to say. He's frightened out of his mind. He's seeing a man be transformed in front of him. And he's seeing the God man pictured in front of him. That's Peter's reaction. But then the father shows up and he has something a little bit better to say. When the father shows up, he shows up as a cloud overshadowing them. And the reason why it's important to reflect upon the fact of what happens throughout the old testament with god's presence is that when god descends we might think that this is just a fog like anthony said a cloud in that sense but the clouds of god's presence in the old testament is something far more fear inducing in the picture that he's giving when he decides to reveal himself in the form of the cloud is to show that first that he is present but also to show god's absolute transcendence and holiness you see this keeps coming up again and again we oftentimes in our culture think too little of god we pray to god as if he's our best pal that we can just nudge him on the shoulder and say, Hey, God, I got a couple favors to ask of you. But the disciples saw, when they saw God, they saw him for who he is. You know, pretty much any unbeliever can mock God and can speak belittling of him. But what's amazing is that whenever someone's in God's presence, Mocking all of a sudden doesn't become an option. When you hear God's thundering voice, the only thing you can usually do is fall on your face and pray, God, may you have mercy upon me as sinner. And because God's goodness, he does. But that does not negate his holiness. That does not negate his power, his transcendence, his transcendence. His greatness. And what the father says in response to this scene is he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. You know, there was another moment in which the father spoke. That was at Jesus's baptism, wasn't it? When he spoke to Jesus, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. But here the father's, his speech is not directed toward Jesus Christ, but it's directed towards the disciples. They are commanded to listen to Jesus Christ. What amazing experience this was to be in God's presence, to hear his voice. You know, there's a challenge that we all have. We haven't had this experience, have we? We haven't seen his glory so vividly with our physical eyes. Jesus's physical body is right now seated on the throne of God. The challenge for us today is to realize that this happened in a moment in history, that the same Jesus Christ He's already had this word spoken of him for us to listen to him. And the same Jesus Christ now glorified is still just as worthy of our obedience, just as worthy of us following him, listening to him, even when he says things that are maybe on first glance confusing. And then Jesus, or rather the father speaks to the disciples in another way. When just in a moment, in verse eight, all of a sudden, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Here, the medium really is the message. God says, Listen to Jesus and then immediately swept up in an instant, the clouds, gone. The physical presence of Moses and Elijah disappear. And they're just left with Jesus, whom they are to listen to. You know what's kind of amazing? Even though we're all wishing for this experience, wishing that We would give anything to be able to see Jesus's glory. You know what usually happens with experiences like these if we go about afterwards and tell everyone about it? The focus actually doesn't usually stay on Jesus. The focus of people's attention becomes on you, on your experience, on your great testimony. Wow, wow. Can you believe what Peter saw? Peter must be a great man. You know, look at my life. Glorify me, honor me, make me famous for the experience I've had. Isn't this basically what every I've been to heaven and back book basically paints for us? They tell of the experience that they had of heaven. And they come back and they say, oh, this is the great thing that's happened to me. And then that person is paraded around. This is not the way God works. The father desires all the focus and all the glory to be directed at the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He's to be our focal point. He is to be our attention That when we give our testimony, you know what this means? This means that the story of our life isn't really about us. Poor Peter. He saw this moment and he said, it's good for us to be here. Let me do something. Let's make tents. But you know what the father said? The father says your focus needs to be on the son." our ultimate testimony, our ultimate witness is not to what Jesus has done in our lives primarily. That is secondarily very true, which Peter does. In 2 Peter chapter 1, when he recounts this very instance, and he says, we were eyewitnesses of Jesus's glory. We are not telling you any cleverly devised myths. First of all, our testimony is what the Lord Jesus Christ has done to save sinners. What Jesus Christ has done to transform our lives. It's all about Jesus. That's probably part of the reason why we get this last command of Jesus, that they are not to tell anyone what they'd seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. You know, it's amazing is this is the last time Jesus has to say this. Believe it or not, when they heard the voice of the father from heaven in the midst of a cloud, shouting, thundering like trumpets blowing, they listened this time. It's amazing. They haven't listened before this moment. But they do listen this time. And they're pondering then to themselves about what this all means. What they pondered, what Jesus said until the resurrection, that they're not to speak of this, which is something that they do. But then start to wonder about this. The ESV actually, I think it's. I agree with its translation about 99.99% of the time. So it's a great translation. But I think actually the New American Standard Bible does a much better job because it associates, this is more of a grammatical point, pairing the right verbs to the right adjectives here. The pairing here that's being missed, if I can find this, there we go that it translates this, that not that they kept the matter to themselves, but rather they seized upon that statement. That what they were holding on to was not holding it within, but what they did is they were listening to Jesus's words, and they held on to that statement that he just made about after his death and rising again, then they can speak about it. Discussing with one another what this rising from the dead meant. This is something that they've been grappling with for a while, and honestly, they're going to keep grappling with it until after the resurrection. And here they're actually really confused by something, confused by something that they've learned. Verse 11 says, They're thinking right now, they're thinking about this resurrection from the dead. They'd just seen this glorious picture on the mountaintop. Now they're walking down from the mountain and they're coming down saying, well, we can't talk about it. Can you explain something to us? We're confused. Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Well, why were the scribes teaching that Elijah must come? Well, part of it is, Because it's true. Jesus says, he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. But why would the scribes be teaching that about the Messiah's coming? Well, knowing this scriptural teaching that Elijah must come first, this would undercut what Jesus is doing. Jesus couldn't possibly be the Messiah, even though he's doing all the things that the Messiah would be doing Because Elijah hasn't come first. That's how you can know that Jesus is a fraud. That's why the scribes were teaching that. But what Jesus was saying here was that their reasoning was only partially true. Elijah must come first. They're right in that expectation, but they're short-sighted in their interpretation of that prophecy. What they're alluding to is Malachi 4, 5, and 6 that says, I'm going to send before you a prophet, the Elijah, before the great and terrible day that the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers towards their children and the hearts of their children towards their fathers. What he's saying here is that John the Baptist, or rather, he's saying here that not that Elijah is not coming, But that, verse 13, I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. You see, the gospel of Mark started off with John the Baptist, preparing the way of the Lord, quoting Isaiah in that ministry of John the Baptist, and he Paints a picture of all the clothing that he wore and the way that he's acting, that it was just like Elijah. But fortunately for us, we have multiple gospel accounts where in Matthew, Jesus says explicitly here that John the Baptist was Elijah. What's the point here? Well, we kind of have the same point of what was being displayed in the glory of Jesus. The restoration that John the Baptist was about was not a physical resol- was not a physical restoration. It was not about bringing a kingdom of this world, not about establishing a political order. The kingdom that John the Baptist was preparing away was, uh, way for, was one of repentance. A restoration, not of political order, but a relationship with a relationship with the God of the universe. He preached the changing of hearts, not political power and might. Jesus here is preparing his people for understanding what kind of kingdom he is to bring. Which is why Jesus says, you know, Jesus, Elijah Cumming's only part of the picture. The Bible also says that the son of man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. And guess what? If the Messiah is called to suffer, is it really that surprising that that's what the forerunner also felt? That he was rejected, that he was killed by Herod? Jesus is framing his glory in what it means that he is the Messiah. You know, I hear pretty frequently that, well, that's just your interpretation when speaking of the Bible, that this is just a matter of personal opinion. You have your interpretation. I have my interpretation. Both are equally valid. Jesus says that's not true. And I think if we turn for a second over to 2 Peter, where that for 2 Peter chapter 1, we'll see why that's not true. 2 Peter chapter 1, after he says that we did not follow clearly, uh, cleverly devised myths in verse 16, that they saw him, Jesus, receive honor and glory from the Father. That he said, this is my beloved son. That we heard his voice born from him on a holy mountain. When he describes this amazing experience. Verse 19 says, and what we have is the prophetic word. That's the scriptures. That's the Old Testament that they had in their hands. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp in a shining dark place why is that well verse 20 says knowing this first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from god as they were carried along by the holy spirit the reason why there's not just your interpretation and my interpretation is because God wrote this book. God wrote the Bible. What we're concerned with discovering is not Nick's interpretation of this passage. What we're concerned to find is what is God saying? Is, he, is this an interpretation that's consistent where God speaks elsewhere? For God does not lie or change his mind. God is the same always, yesterday, today, and forever. The Pharisees actually show a lot of what we are trying to do when we say, oh, that's just your interpretation. What we're really saying is that when we get to a place where it seems a little too literal for us, like Jesus is going to suffer, or Jesus calls me to suffer, what we tend to do is maybe spiritualize that text. Say, well, that's not literally what he means. Spiritually, that's true, suffering. You know, I'll maybe not get the best car. Maybe that's all it means. And then there's also the tendency to say, well, that's just your interpretation because you take a text like the calling of Elijah, that Elijah is going to come back and you're overly literal with a prophecy that's meant to have a spiritual connotation to it. That Jesus said that John the Baptist was Elijah, but he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. We have to be very careful then. Studious students of God's word that we correctly interpret it. And you know what? By our nature, I think what we see in the manifold uh, different denominations different religious sects what we end up seeing is that people are pretty bad readers of their bible what this calls us to is all of us to study the scriptures and what the amazing thing that peter says here in second peter chapter one is he said there something about experience i don't want us to miss Peter had witnessed the highest of spiritual experiences better than going to a conference where you're surrounded by people who are devoted to Christ more spiritually high than any mountaintop that we've ever been on. He had an experience that confirmed that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and he saw it with his own eyes. But what Peter says is what we hold in our hands, the prophetic word is something more sure, something more sure. That's because while it's easy for people to twist the scriptures, we can always go back to the scriptures. But when it comes to experience, those get twisted even more. What we have in the Bible is not just the experiences and the different events of history, but we have their interpretation. And all the interpretations of the scriptures, what they show us, what Moses is writing, show us what Elijah's experience, show us what they all show us. Is that they all come to their consummation in their focus in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death to save sinners and his rising from the dead and that he is able to save all who come to him and give assurance that we anticipate a glory that he has, that he's able to deliver to us. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us a more sure word than any experience that we could possibly experience. Lord, we know that even though Peter James and John had the best experience, the highest spiritual experience that while they saw Jesus transformed, Lord, they were still confused afterwards. What we have in the scriptures is a more sure word. We have the father's testimony that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord, is our savior and is the Christ that the same voice that spoke from on the mountain and whatever mountain Jesus was standing on is the same voice that speaks to us in the scriptures and speaks to us that if we are found in Christ, our guilt has been removed, that there is no longer any barrier between us and God. And that whatever suffering that God has planned for us in this life. We have the promise that it'll all work together for those who are loved by God and called according to his purposes, that whatever we face in life or in death will be used for our good and your glory. Lord, may you focus for the rest of your day in which we worship you, may you focus our hearts on the man, the God-man, who is left on that mountain? Jesus and Jesus on him alone. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen.